Hey, this is Miles Hunter. I'm the pastor of TC3 Students, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope this message helps you connect to the life-changing power of Jesus Christ and gives you the courage to live out your faith in your homes, schools, and community. Enjoy today's message. Hey, how you doing? Oh, there we go. Now I'm, I'm, I'm on it. Hey, how you guys doing? You guys doing great? Hey, we're so glad that you guys are with us tonight. We're going to continue in our Stranger Things series, uh, and we're, we're talking about spiritual warfare. If you, don't know, if you don't know what spiritual warfare is, think about the show, Stranger Things. Uh, and if you haven't seen the show, uh, it's about these, these kids that are fighting ultimately this battle uh, that is in the... Thank you, Connor. Everybody give it up for Connor. They're, they're fighting a battle that is affecting their reality, but they cannot, in fact, see it with their physical eyes. But something, something is affecting their here and their right now, and yet they cannot physically see it. That's, in essence, what spiritual warfare is. It is the fact that Ephesians 6, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he tells them and he tells us that our battle, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against against powers and rulers and demons and principalities in the spiritual realm. We are fighting a battle that is affecting our reality, but we cannot see it. And so last week we asked the Lord, Lord, open up our eyes so that we can, so that we can see, so that we would know and understand, man, I know that there are, there are powers and rulers and evil forces out there trying to destroy my life, but God, allow me to see and recognize that the angels of heaven's armies are fighting for me. And that I can walk in victory because I know that Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection has already won the battle. I know that no matter what it is that the enemy tries to attack me with, he has already lost because my Savior Jesus has already won. And so the desire as we talked last week was God open up my, open up my eyes, open up my eyes and then use the people around me to pray for me when I cannot see the battle because it's just that dark. God, allow me to take every thought captive in my mind that speaks lies to me because, Sam, where are you at, Sam? Because the scene of the crime is my, right. The scene of the crime is my, right. So God, help me take every thought captive so that I can fight the battles within my mind that the enemy is trying to place there because he's a deceiver, he's a liar, he's an accuser as John 8 44 tells us. So God, surround me with people that can pray for me to have my eyes open when I don't remember that my reality is being affected by something I cannot see. God, give me the strength to take every thought, to take every thought captive and then help me remember that my savior, Jesus has already won. Well, tonight we're going to talk about, talk about a tactic of the enemy. We learned last week that he is an accuser, that he is a liar, he is a deceiver. His goal, his goal is ultimately to convince us of what is not real, hence why so many of us have identity problems because our identities are anchored in what's not true of us. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about another tactic of the enemy tonight. But before we start talking about it, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to stay where you are, one, and I'm going to ask you to lock in. Because at the end of the day, the enemy does not want us to have this conversation just like we talked about last week. 
He wants nothing more than for you to be distracted. He wants nothing more than for you to think that he doesn't care about you and he's not attacking you and he wants nothing to do with you. He wants nothing more than for you to check out so that you can't absorb what it is that we're gonna talk about that's going to show you how to fight against the enemy that has no power over the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of you. And so I'm gonna ask that you stay tuned in. I'm going to ask that you stay locked in, and by God's grace, I am going to be able to speak with enough love, grace, compassion, and humility that keeps you tuned in. And so as we talk about a tactic of the enemy, I want to remind you of the story in Stranger Things. In this, in this last season, uh, you, have, uh, you have this girl, Max, right? She's like, she's a tough chick, this redheaded, tough chick that just like, Man, she has this crazy home life. Her brother, Billy, obviously, like, had just, had just passed away, and she is wrestling with the trauma of thinking that she was the one that ultimately got Billy killed. She's wrestling with this, with this trauma. She's suffering mentally, and, and the, the mind flayer, Vecna, sees and understands her suffering and goes after her as a result of her trauma. He sees her weakness, and he attacks her weakness. Everybody follow me? Okay, great. Fantastic. So, so Vecna attacks her weakness and he tries everything that he can to make her suffer both physically and emotionally. Like she can't, she can't sleep. She can't dream. She is plagued by ultimate thoughts of like fear, deception, lies, and really the fact that she's like, I am, I'm an unworthy individual. And she day by day is suffering. She can't find joy. She can't find peace in her physical body. She has pain. She can't even close her eyes without thinking about regret and fear and disappointment. I have a feeling that some of us kind of know what that's like. And she's experiencing the attack of an individual that she can't even see. Well, that's exactly what the enemy does. And, and, and today we're going to look at Satan, the enemy, the devil, the destroyer. He attempts to destroy us. The Bible says that he is a, he is a lion prowling around seeking whom he can devour. I want you to know that the Bible tells us that he is prowling around seeking whom he can devour because it wants us to know that male lions prowl they don't hunt, female lions do. All he can do is prowl, all he can do is growl, all he can do is, is try and scare you, but ultimately he cannot have victory over you unless you allow him to. He can't dominate you. And so Satan, the destroyer, if he cannot deceive your mind like we talked about last week, he will attempt to destroy your body both physically and mentally through suffering. But here's the truth. Here's the truth that we're going to reiterate time and time and time again today that I need you to walk away with, that even in our suffering, God is in control. Even in our suffering, God is in control. And so when God permits Satan to light the furnace, God always has his hand on the thermostat. Satan can't turn up the temperature. Luke 22, 31 through 32, God tells Simon Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. 
So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. And that's, that's the story that we're going to look up today. In, in the book of Job, I'm kidding, it's Job, okay? It's, it's Job. In the, book of, in the book of Job, Satan comes to the Lord. And he's like, he literally, it says like, Satan enters into the throne room of heaven with the angels and Satan requests God, God, can I tempt your servant Job? He asks God because he has to. Satan cannot touch a hair on your head unless God allows it to be. Again, even in our suffering, God is in control. And so Satan asked God, God, can I, can I afflict your servant Job? Can I touch your servant Job? And God allows him to. But before we go into that, before we go into that story, we probably need to define what suffering is. There is a few different aspects of suffering. We're going to go through them really quickly. There's natural suffering. It's what we experience simply because we are human and we are living in a sinful world. The, the fact that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they went against what God said. They ate from the tree that God said, do not eat from. The moment that they did that, sin entered into the world. Therefore, everything, everything is suffering. The reason that the grass is brown, the reason that leaves fall, the reason that flowers die is a result of sin. God did not build the earth to be like that. The reason that we die, the reason that we get old and decrepit and our bodies fail is a result of sin. God did not build us that way. And so that is what natural suffering is all about. Gordon gave us this wonderful statistic just a few months ago, and it's this, 100 out of 100 people die. And I would add to that, everybody that Jesus healed in the Bible also died. Everybody. And so like natural suffering is just what we suffer as a result of sin. Then there's corrective suffering. It should be called consequential suffering. It's the consequences of our personal sin and disobedience that the Lord allows to happen. It's a result of us making bad decisions. Like I think about me as a high school student, like doing things with my girlfriend that I should not have been doing and the result of like fear and anxiety, worrying of what was going to happen as a result, the result of me spending months and months and months like in stress and anxiousness and depression as a result of my actions, those things are called corrective suffering. Those are things that I brought on myself and not that the enemy brought on my life. And so let's not get it twisted as we talk about how Satan attacks us and makes us suffer because God has allowed him to. That's not what that is. That's corrective suffering. It's like having a hangover after drinking too much or getting caught cheating or getting kicked out of college. Those things are corrective suffering. And then there's perfective suffering. That's suffering that God allows to mature us. James 1, James 1 simply says, says this, it says, um, it, it basically accept your suffering like you shall consider it pure joy whenever you suffer many trials, trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. Consider it pure joy, brothers, whenever you suffer many trials because the testing of your faith will develop perseverance. And so it's how gold needs to be refined. It needs to be made pure in the fire it has to be put over the heat for the impurities to melt out. And that's what God is trying to do with us. He allows us to go through suffering so that we will be made purified and perfect just as gold is. 
And so the question is like, why does Satan attack our bodies through suffering? We as followers of Jesus can be seen and it's, it's how we act in the body that makes the name of Jesus famous, right? And so Matthew 5, 16 says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your father in heaven. See, God wants to use our bodies as a vehicle to reveal himself to the entire world. So the moment that you say yes to Jesus, God's like, I'm going to use your physical body to glorify me so that everybody will praise me, AKA the giftings that I've given you, whether you can sing, whether you're super smart, whether you play a sport really well, God's like, I have given you those giftings in your body so that the world will see you and give honor to me. And so Satan decides that he wants to attack our body. He's attacking the one means that God has to reveal his grace and love to a lost world. That's why he attacks our body. And so how does Satan, the enemy, use suffering? Well, Satan attacked Job's body through circumstances. Job lost his children, he lost his wealth, he lost the favor of his wife, he lost his friends, his neighbors, and then Satan attacked Job's body physically with a horrible disease. And so we're going to look at the story of Job starting in chapter 1, verse 13. If you're a theater kid, you're going to like this because Job should read as a play. It should genuinely read as like a script that you're reading. And so it says this in Job 1, 13 and 20. One day Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the older brother's house and a messenger arrived at Job's home with the news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived and he said, the, father, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and he burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived. And he said, your sons and daughters were feasting with their older brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all of your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And this verse 20 says, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief, and then he shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshiped. Hold up, we're not done. Then Job 2, 7 through 10 says, so Satan left the Lord's presence again. So he went back to the Lord and was like, I haven't afflicted your servant enough. Your servant Job still has not turned against you. Can I afflict him some more? And God says, yes, just don't kill him. And then he says, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. And so Job gets attacked on every single side. His family, his wealth, his animals, his livestock, his servants, his, his, his wheat, everything of Job gets attacked. Every bad circumstance. Like think of your worst day ever and then multiply that by like 100. That's what happened to Job. But here's the thing, guys. And here's what Job understood and what we have to understand. We cannot control where our suffering comes from, but we can control how we respond. 
We can control how we respond, and God wants us to respond with patience and perspective. And unless we have patience, we can never learn what God wants us to learn. It's the fact that even in our suffering, the perspective that he wants us to have is that even in our suffering, God is still in control. And Satan knows that if he can make us impatient, he can lead us to do something stupid and we can get ourselves into trouble. And so the question is, what is our defense against the enemy's attack? So here we go. The first one is this. We need to surround ourselves with people that will be an encouragement to us. It's the example of Lucas being there for Max. Like he, he didn't necessarily have to be there, but he loved Max. And he wanted to encourage her and he wanted to remind her of who she really was. And he wanted her to remember that the death of her brother wasn't her fault. And so even in her suffering, her buddy was there. It's the example of Job's friends sitting with him in Job chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. It says, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console them. And then it says, it says later that they just sat there and they wailed loudly in grief. They tore their robes and they threw dust into the air in their heads to show grief. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. The, the, the Jews, the uh, Hebrews believed that Job's friends, they call this like, Janae keeps laughing every time I say it, sitting shiva. Uh, can you say that like 10 times without bringing up a curse word? Sitting shiva, okay? So like they are, there were rules in sitting shiva, right? Like if your friend was in mourning, if your friend was suffering, your role was to sit beside he or she and not say a word. Like you were not allowed to speak. Your job was to just sit and be with them. And that's what Job's friends are doing. They are just being with him. And so if you don't have those type of friends that would just be with you in the midst of your suffering, find them. Find the people that will sit with you in your suffering and not say a word unless they are spoken to. And when you speak to them, whatever comes out of their mouth is not just glorifying to God, but encouraging to you. Number two is, this is really tough. It's tough for me. Thank God for, for the trial. This doesn't mean that we have to enjoy suffering, but only that we rejoice because we are suffering in the will of God and we know that he is in control. Even in our suffering, God is in control. It gives us that patience and perspective thing that we need. Job 1.20 says, Job stood up, he tore his robe in grief. So he's grieving, he's hurt, he's suffering. And then it says this, then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. Can you imagine worshiping in the worst time in your life, telling God, like, thank you, I love you. If you never blessed me again a day in my life, what you did for me on the cross through your son Jesus was enough for me. That's where Job is. The last one is this, spend much time in God's word. It is the word of his grace. Grace, like I said earlier, is a free gift that we do not deserve. It is the word, the Bible, the word of his grace and the precious promise of God that will strengthen us. So you need strength in your suffering. It's not calling your best friend. Yeah, they need to surround you and they need to sit Shiva with you, but it is not, it is not them that will strengthen you. It is the word of God that will strengthen you. And so hear, hear this. We 
don't live on the explanations of God. We live on the promises of God. We don't live on the explanations of God. God doesn't have to explain anything to us. He's God. We live on the promises of God. And so Job, here, this story, it doesn't end with an explanation. There's no resolution at the end of this story. It kind of just like cuts off. And we would look at the story and we'd be like, why don't you explain to Job why you're doing this? Why don't you explain to Job that you're allowing Satan to do this? We look at this story and we're like, why is it in this way? And that's how life is. We don't get all of the answers, guys. We don't get everything. But God wants us to take away from Job a perspective that can flip our suffering on its head. In the middle of the book of Job, in chapter 28, we see this gem. And it doesn't explain why they're suffering, but it does explain what our perspective should be in suffering, this diamond in the rough. And so I'm going to ask you to do something a little strange. I'm just going to ask you all to close your eyes. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes, seriously. Everybody just close your eyes, and I'm going to ask that you take in this passage. It's a little long, so prepare your mind. But this is the diamond in the rough in the book of Job. literally sits right in the middle of this book, and it says this. God says, people know where to mine silver and how to refine gold. They know where to dig iron from the earth and how to smelt copper from rock. They know how to shine light in the darkness and explore the farthest regions of the earth as they search in the dark for ore. They sink a mine shaft into the earth far from where anyone lives. They descended on ropes swinging back and forth. Food is grown on the earth above, but down below the earth is melted as by fire. Here the rocks contain precious lapis, lazuli, and the dust contains gold. These are the treasures no bird of prey can see, no falcon's eye observe, no wild animal has walked upon these treasures. No lion has ever set his paw there. People know how to tear apart flinty rock and overturn the roots of mountains. They cut tunnels in the rocks and uncover precious stones. They dam up the trickling streams and bring to light the hidden treasures. But do people know where to find wisdom? Where can they find understanding? No one knows where to find it, for it is not found among the living. It is not here, says the ocean, nor is it here, says the sea. It cannot be bought with gold. It cannot be purchased with silver. It's worth more than all the gold of Urfer, greater than precious onyx. Wisdom is more valuable than gold and crystal. It cannot be purchased with jewels mounted in fine gold. Carol and Jasper are worthless in trying to get it. The price of wisdom is far above rubies. It is hidden from the eyes of all humanity. Even the sharp-eyed birds in the sky cannot discover it. Destruction and death say, we've heard only rumors of where wisdom can be found. And God alone understands the way to wisdom. He knows where it can be found, for he looks throughout the whole earth and sees everything under the heavens. He decided how hard the wind should blow and how much rain should fall. He made the laws for the rain and laid out a path for the lightning. And then he saw wisdom and evaluated it. He set it in place and examined it thoroughly. And this is what he says to all humanity. The fear of the Lord is true wisdom. To forsake evil is real understanding. You can open up your eyes. Here's what God is trying to tell us through that entire passage that sits right in the middle of this play of suffering. He's saying simply this. God's telling us that he can mine minerals from the hills of suffering as easily as man can mine minerals from the hills of the mountains. 
He's like, you can dig and you can find diamonds in the rough. You can break away the flinty rock. You can mine and mine and mine and find minerals in the hills. But I, I can find the minerals in your suffering. Even in your suffering, God is in control. God takes everything the enemy means for evil and he turns it for good. He does that in Job's life and he can do it in ours. And God doesn't waste any of our suffering, not an ounce of it. But even in our suffering, God is in control. I'm gonna read you this story as the band comes up and gets ready to play. This last story, I don't know if many of you know this young lady, uh, Jane, but her stage name is Nightbird. Janae was actually like uh, friends with her at Liberty. She went to school with Janae and, and I, and she was like, she was on America's Got Talent and she kind of blew up. Like her voice was amazing, beautiful, um, but she like was suffering, was dying from cancer and then eventually like just passed away not too long ago. But it was her story of suffering as she shared it to a national audience that helped people not just connect to her and her story, but to connect to Jesus. Thousands of people have connected to Jesus through her story, through her knowing and understanding that even in my suffering, God is still in control. And so guys, I just wanna read you, like she has this blog and I just wanna read you a blog post of hers really quickly that, uh, that makes me tear up. She says this, she says, I don't remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer and for a long time after that, I wasn't in my body. I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far and after the doctor told me I was dying and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with it, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I'm barely past 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. And I fear sometimes that when I die and meet God, that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this, he can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day and sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes with apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in and other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and dip, drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat day and night, sun, sunrise and sun, sunset. Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. 
count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened, but count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I am sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us, and I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to God who let the Israelites lost, stay lost in for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but he steady let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. And for 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night, and every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I don't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees and my mother's crooked hands and the blanket my friend left me for and the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It is a prayer I don't mean yet, but I will repeat it until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with the loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. And even on the days when I'm not sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is there, even now. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. If you can't see God, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. What I want you guys to know and to hear through all of that is two things. One, even in your suffering, God is still in control. And two, I pray that of all those things, you would also be counted among the friends of God. That even though you're not perfect, and even though you may curse God, and even though you don't understand, that God would say, I know you. And so like, I don't, I don't know where you are like in your relationship with the Lord. I don't know if you have one. I don't know if you would be counted among the friends of God, but I can, I can tell you it's really simple to make sure that you will be. God sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that you and I will never be able to live. And he acts as a bridge from us to God the Father so that we can have a relationship with him so that we will be counted among the friends of God. And he says, in order to be counted among my friend, counted as my friend, all you have to do is say yes to what my son Jesus did for you on the cross. And that starts with just a simple prayer. And so I'm gonna ask you guys to close your eyes one last time. If you're in here and you're wondering, crap, am I counted as a friend of God? Will I be counted among God's friends? Or when I get to him, will he look at me and say he never knew me? I pray, I pray that you're counted among his friends. If you're questioning that in your heart today and you want to know for sure that you'll be counted among the friends of God, I just wanna pray with you. It's a simple prayer, it's an easy prayer, but it's not my words that make the difference, it's your words that make the difference, and it's Jesus' work that he's already done for you. 
And so if you want a relationship with, with Jesus today, I just wanna ask you to raise your hand. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm just gonna ask that you would raise your hand. Raise it high, don't be ashamed, nobody's looking. Amen. All right, would you pray this prayer with me, everybody? Dear Jesus, come on, say it like you mean it. Dear Jesus, take control of my life from this day forward. I am a new creation, a new creation in you. I ask that you would forgive me for my sins and that you would make me clean. I accept what you, Jesus, did for me on the cross, in your life, in your death, and in your resurrection. And I believe that I will forever be counted as a friend of God. Jesus, thank you for the students in this place that came to know you tonight. Thank you so much that you, God, are still in control even in our suffering. And thank you, God, that because of Jesus, we get to be called your friends. In Jesus' name, amen.